Welcome to this Farm Advisory Service podcast. In this podcast, conservation consultant Helen Bibby spoke to Tom Prescott of Butterfly Conservation Scotland, a senior conservation officer there. The podcast focuses on biodiversity, particularly looking at moths. For more information, please visit the Farm Advisory Service website. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Hello, I'm Helen Bibby. Well, I'm usually out and about on crofts and farms at this time of year. Due to COVID-19, I now find myself restricted to the desk for a while. So I'm looking for new ways to get information on biodiversity out to farmers and crofters. Today, I have joining me Dr Tom Prescott of Butterfly Conservation Scotland. Hello, Tom. Hi there, Helen. And we're going to be talking about the role that butterflies and moths play in biodiversity. Tom and I have worked together for many years assisting farmers get their land into agri-environment schemes, particularly to benefit the marsh fertility butterfly. However, today I'm particularly interested in the role of moths, which seem to have a poor press and a reputation for only eating clothes. So perhaps, Tom, you can start by giving us a little introduction to moths. Yes, certainly, Helen. Uh, I'm only too happy to talk about moths. Yes, as you say, uh, moths have a a very bad press, Um, but they are wonderful insects. Uh, First of all, in Scotland, we have 37 different species of butterfly, uh, but we have uh, over 1,500 different types of moths. So that the scale and the biodiversity of them is amazing. Um, Yes, some are quite dull and quite brown, but when you look at them very closely, their patterns are very intricate and they're very, very well camouflaged. Yet others are incredibly bright and incredibly colourful, far more so than a lot of our butterflies. Some are superb mimics. Uh, We have one, particularly in Argyll, but now it's spread throughout a lot of Scotland, the narrow-bordered bee hawk moth. And if I was to show that to you, then you would couldn't believe that it was not a bumblebee. It has clear wings and a, a bumblebee body, and it even buzzes. We have ones uh, that also mimic wasps and clearwing moths that uh, are very, very similar to, to flies. So they, they come in all different shapes and sizes. Most of them are nocturnal. And that's probably why they're rarely encountered, unless you run a moth trap. I'm lucky enough that I live in Kingusi and I've got quite a nice wee garden, and I run a, a moth trap at night uh, whenever the weather is suitable and I have time to check it in the morning. And I've probably recorded over 250 to 300 different species just in my fairly modest wee garden. I think people would be amazed if they if you haven't actually seen the moths in a moth trap before. I remember the first time I trapped in my garden at home, when I looked in the moth trap, I was just amazed at the variety and colour of the moths that were uh, flying about my house at night, and I had no idea of, of what it was about. Yeah, it, it's in, incredible. I mean, I, I'm uh, lucky enough to travel around a lot of Scotland giving advice, to, ad, advice to, to farmers and I stay in a lot of B&Bs and I nearly always take my moth trap with me and I ask if I can run it in their garden. And these are people who've had their houses for, you know, 20, 30 years they've been living there. And I turn up and I just happen to show them in the morning, you know, species that are very, very common 
wonderfully colourful and beautiful. And of course, they've most of them they've rarely seen before, and they've been there all the time. One of the classic ones, and one of my most favourite ones, is the brightly coloured elephant hawk moth. It, I call it the Barbie moth because it's so bright and vivid pink, and it can be really common. It seems to be having a superb year this year. A friend of mine on the Black Isle caught 37 of them in, in their moth trap just the other night. I had three or four in my trap two nights ago. Feeds as a caterpillar primarily on Rose Bay willow herb, common plant throughout most of Scotland and therefore almost anywhere where there's reasonable amounts of willow herb, you will have the elephant hawk moth. Oh, what about... Um... Other native plants, because there's quite, you know, a lot of different habitats round and about, farms in particular. So does that help have a variety of moths there? Uh, yes, the, the, the more varied habitats and varied food plants you have, then the more variety of species that you will likely encounter. So moths, you, you, they, they come in sort of two varieties really that there's the very common species and these tend to feed as caterpillars and almost any type of, of food plant whether that's uh, low growing plants or, or the leaves of, of, of trees particularly deciduous trees and these species tend to be they're not too fussy they tend to occur throughout most of Scotland yet we have other species that are incredibly rare only occur at one or two sites uh, so, for instance, one of them is called the Kentish Glory, uh, so-called because it used to occur in Kent. It became extinct down south. It last seen in about the 1950s and 60s, but it still occurs um, in Scotland, primarily in the Cairngorms. The caterpillars feed on birch, probably our commonest tree in Scotland. Yet there's something about the climate in the Cairngorms and the fact that it only feeds on the leaves of trees on young birch, probably up to a couple of metres tall. So its habitat is very ephemeral. And as soon as those trees grow up and they're too big, even though the trees still have the leaves on, it's not to the liking of the caterpillars. And therefore the moth dies out. And a lot of these species, they, they aren't great at colonising new areas of habitat. So if there's new young birch nearby, then it might be able to move. But if that woodland becomes mature and you use, lose that young birch, then you therefore lose the moth. And it may be that you can recreate that habitat a few years later, but if the moth has gone, then it's unlikely to refind it. So they're often too fussy for their own good. I like to use the analogy that uh, when my kids were young at home, if you went away on holiday and you'd left them at home um, and you had pizza and you had Brussels sprouts, they would eat all the pizza, but then they would starve to death rather than touch in the Brussels sprouts. And it's very similar in the in the moth world that uh, these caterpillars are so can be so specialised and feed on just a specific food plant that uh, if it's not quite to their liking, then um, that's it. The habitat is therefore not suitable. And for a lot of species, we really don't know, uh, for some species, even what the food plant is. But for a lot of them, we don't know what that real specific niche is. Some of them may, obviously, have a reputation for eating clothes. So there must be some of them that do eat clothes. Yes, uh, there, there's there's one or two that uh, give the rest of the moth world uh, a very poor name. So out of those 1,500 moths that occur in Scotland, uh, there's three or four 
that uh, eat clothes, but they're only feeding on natural fabric. So they'll be feeding on predominantly on wool. They are actually becoming uh, quite scarce in some places. Uh, they don't like central heating. They prefer being undisturbed in dark and damp places. So if you are given a jumper that you're not particularly fond of for Christmas by your aunt and you fold it away and put it back at the back of the wardrobe and don't touch it for several years and then she comes to visit and you get it out and find that the moths have been at it then if she was a lepidopterist she would know that you've not worn it since. So clothes that you wear regularly and particularly washing them and using you know modern day fabric conditioners that tends to deter them. But in, in reality, out in the wild, then these particular caterpillars of these moths, these clothes moths, would be feeding on sheep's wool and, um, you know, detritus in the bottoms of, of birds' nests. But they found our uh, cooler homes to their liking. Maybe you could tell us something about the life cycle of moths, because most of them have annual life cycles, don't they? Yes, that's right. So uh, moths are exactly the same as butterflies. They have four stages. So that is egg, caterpillar, larva or pupa, it's, uh, sorry, pupa or cocoon, and then the adult. And in Scotland, the vast majority of those will go through that life cycle in a year. Now, occasionally for some species, if we get a good summer, they've got the ability to have a second generation so they can go through that cycle twice in a year. We have some species that live at the very tops of our highest mountains and there the conditions are obviously much cooler, much colder and they take certainly two years so they owe their caterpillar probably for around about 18 months. Some species in south of the border have an annual life cycle, yet the same species north of the border has a two-year life cycle. A species called northern egger does that. Uh, we have some very rare burnet moths in Scotland that are only known from a handful of sites, uh, on, predominantly on the, on the west coast. And in some ways, these are honorary butterflies because they fly mostly during the day but they have an insurance policy. They know, they tend to know because they're Scottish, that if we have a decent summer one year, the chances of having another decent summer the next year is greatly reduced. So rather than putting all their eggs in one basket, as it were, and all emerge in the following year, a proportion of the population at the caterpillar stage act a bit like teenagers and they just laser around and do nothing for that summer and they come out the following summer. So that's their insurance policy. Not all of them will be there. So a proportion of them will be ready to come out the, the following year. And I think what's interesting about the life cycle is that they're not, all the different species are not in the same stages of the life cycle at any one time. So at different times in the spring, you'll find some on the wing, you'll find some as caterpillars, and you'll find some still in the egg stages. So at different times, you can find quite a host of different things going on with them. Very much so, Helen, yes. So if, if you're a bird watcher and you're looking for swallows and things, you know that they're here from sort of April to September. They're here through, a hot, through the whole summer. But a lot of our species are only on the wing as adults for maybe two or three weeks of the year. And that, that is in timing with their life cycle and with their particular food plants. Most species, as a general rule, overwinter as a caterpillar. 
but obviously species overwinter as adults, as eggs, and as pupa. And most of them have the same blueprint. So if, for instance, you're a large yellow underwing, then all that population overwinters as a caterpillar, feeds in the spring, comes out as adults in the summer, then the eggs are laid, the caterpillars come out in the late summer, autumn, do a bit of feeding, overwinter as that caterpillar coming out again as a caterpillar in the spring to do a bit of feeding and then pupating. So they have that same life cycle per species. But they're, they all, although they have the four life stages, when they do it on the calendar in the year is subtly different. Okay. Before we go on to talk about uh, the part they play in our ecosystem and why actually they're a really, really important group of species as a whole. Maybe you could tell us something about the difference between butterflies and moths, just so that people don't get too confused. Well, it's slightly confusing because there isn't really a difference. They are all in the same family of Lepidoptera. And Lepidoptera comes from the Greek lepis, which is uh, scale, and pteron, which is wing. So Lepidoptera means scaled wings. And the pattern on a butterfly and a moth is a bit like a slate roof. If you imagine looking at a slate roof and all those slates were different colours, that then gives you the pattern on the wing of your butterfly and moth. The other thing that should be said is that when butterflies and moths first emerge from the pupa, they're pristine. Every scale, once the wings have been inflated, are in place and they look wonderfully colourful and well marked. But as they fly, then they tend to slowly and steadily lose these scales. So by the, by the end of their particular flight season, some individuals can almost have completely transparent wings. And it can mean that some moths, particularly these worn moths that have been flying for a long time and have lost that pattern on the wings, can be very, very difficult uh, to identify, almost impossible to identify. And of course, all the books and all the photographs you see online tend to be pristine species that have freshly emerged looking at their best. I definitely know about that from uh, trying to identify old worn species in my moth trap in the morning and uh, for a number of them you just definitely have to give up. Some of them have beaten their wings so much against the bulb or have been in the wing for such a long time that you can't actually see the markings anymore and they're quite bald. And also if you handle them you have to be quite careful because your fingers are a bit greasy and that can remove scales from them and damage them maybe more than you think at the time. So um, what we're going to move on to now is actually, you know, moths are a really huge part of the ecosystem. And I hadn't realised that until I was working with them a bit more, how important they were on the whole ecosystem. So maybe we could kind of mention, you know, what is it that moths do in our ecosystem that is so important? Uh, that's apart from uh, keeping me entertained and out of mischief and uh, taking over my life. Yeah, yes, uh, moths, they're, they're a fundamental part of, the, of our ecosystems. You know, they're in virtually every habitat. So they occur, as I said before, we have these species like northern dart at the tops of our highest mountains, right down to, to species that are actually, some of them are feeding on the, on the roots of plants. So they're living under, underground or in the stems of plants. 
their their main function in the ecosystem is sadly they are bird fodder they are fodder for for breeding birds particularly young birds so species like blue tits and great tits they time the hatching of their young to coincide with a superabundance of caterpillars um, in woodland and the vast majority of those caterpillars are moth caterpillars so they are fundamental to the to the food chain as adults then yes some birds will be able to catch the adult butterflies and adult moths but all bats will feed on moths the bigger bats take in the, the obviously the larger moths but the smaller bats uh, will obviously take, be feeding on a lot of midges and smaller insects, but they will also take some of the much smaller, smaller moths. So they are also very, very good indicator species. Because they have this annual life cycle, they're very quick to respond to changes in the environment. So whether that's through climate change, and we're seeing that with lots of species, a large number of butterfly and moth species are moving north into Scotland and within Scotland. So where I live here in Kingusi, I've been here for 20 odd years. I have seen four or five species of butterfly colonize uh, the area. And we think that is due to, due to climate change as these species are able to move north. So things like um, orange tip, peacock, uh, ringlet and at the moment the species that we're getting excited about that, that's moving into the area is comma. The other thing that they're, if they're good at indicating is changes in management. So if you are altering how you manage a particular piece of land or creating a wildflower meadow or planting a hedge then one of the things that you can then use to see the success of that is to look at the Lepidoptera that are there and see how they're responding to those changes in the in the management. Um, Frank, when I when I've been trapping in my garden, we had a, a whole wood of thick spruce behind the house, and I had a lot of moths associated with that. And as soon as it was cut down, all those moths disappeared, and I had a complete different set of moths. Uh, came into the trap it was uh, actually the change was quite amazing yeah no that, that's what's so exciting about uh, getting into butterflies and moths is that uh, you go to different habitats and you'll see a different suite of species go to different parts of the country and again you'll see different suites of species but also at different times of year what I catch in my garden in April is very very different to what I catch in you know May June July so it's always changing. Um, and, you know, to me, that's what's so fascinating about this, the studying them. And because of that, you know, it, 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 it's, it almost needs a health warning because it can almost be addictive. And, you know, in these times when we're all stuck at home, um, if we're lucky enough to have gardens or be able to get and walk out in the, into the countryside, then, you know, seeing nature and particularly seeing butterflies and moths is very, very good for your, for your mental health. So one of the things also 
that I think they have a role in is uh, pollination. It is particularly one of the things that I wanted to talk a bit more about today because I think their role in pollination is not often known. In fact, as a species, I think they're actually completely ignored when they're a massively important part of the biodiversity. But they, they are also, they have a role as pollinators. Just because you don't see them and they fly by night doesn't mean to say, you know, they're not there. So, you know, they do do quite a lot of pollination of uh, native plants in particular. Uh, maybe before we go any further, we, we could explain a bit more about what pollination is before we talk about the role of moths as pollinators. Yes, certainly, Helen. So um, put very simply, you know, pollination is the transfer of pollen from the male to the female reproductive structures of a plant. So therefore, that's how the plant gets fertilised and therefore that's how the seed is uh, produced. Many plants are, are pollinated by the wind, but obviously the huge number are reliant on animals to, to pollinate them, and the vast majority of those are insects. And some of those insects are butterflies and moths. Now, butterflies and moths predominantly pollinate uh, wildflowers uh, more so than uh, crops and they're attracted to the to the flowers to, to feed on the nectar that's sort of their reward they feed by um, through their proboscis which is really just a uh, drinking straw so they unfurl their drinking straw put it into the flower and then soak up the, the nectar but in doing that, they are taking on pollen. So the pollen might stick on their legs, on their bodies, on their heads or on their proboscis. And as they then go and fly to another flower, they will be taking that pollen with them. So plants are quite colourful uh, during, during the day. That's one of the reasons for colourful flowers and things like that. And that's to attract uh, insects and butterflies to pollinate it. However, most moths fly at night. Does scent come into it in any way here? Yeah, very much so, both by day, because there's obviously a lot of day-flying moths and butterflies, but also at night. So things like honeysuckle, um, you know, that's very attractive to some of the bigger moths, things like elephant hawk moth, which we were talking about earlier. If you want to see those at night and you haven't got a, a moth trap, if you go out with your torch to check the blooms of honeysuckle, then you may be lucky enough to see elephant hawk moths uh, hovering and then uncoiling their, their proboscis to feed on the nectar. But a lot of um, orchids, they are scented at night. So things like butterfly orchids uh, and uh, fragrant orchids, they are, they, they've got scent during the day, but they particularly put scent out at night because they are almost solely reliant on specific moths to come to the, those flowers that have a tongue that's sufficiently long enough to get the nectar, but in doing so, they're there rubbing their heads in the flower and they're picking up not so much the pollen grains in um, orchids, but a thing called pollinia. And what you can do is that you can run a moth trap and catch moths where these orchids are and check to see if they have this this pollinia on their bodies 
and you're able to quite easily with a hand lens identify the species of orchid that the pollinia comes from and that by doing that people have found that uh, species like uh, silver Y and gold spangle and beautiful golden Y tend to be the main pollinators of the butterfly orchids. For a lot of species the pollen is, is minute and very small and it's very difficult to determine what species are pollinating which, uh, which particular flowers. So how important do you actually think butterflies and moths are as pollinators? Because, you know, you hear mostly about uh, mostly bees, uh, honeybees or wild bees and bumblebees. But moths and butterflies do play their part in pollination. So how important do you think they actually are as this? Well, as we've just explained, for, for things like orchids, they're almost totally reliant on uh, on, on nighttime moths. But for a lot of our wildflowers, then they, they will be reliant on, to some extent, on pollination by, uh, by moths, uh, whether that's during the day or at night. The, the other thing with pollination, it's not really just a one-off event. You don't just get one moth going into one plant, picking up a few pollen grains, and then flying off to the neighbouring flower and pollinating it. Often what's required is a specific amount of pollen for there to be successful pollination and therefore seed production. So, so it needs to happen on a, on a certain scale. Also, because this is happening at night and it's quite difficult to study, we know very little about the, the real true interactions between specific species of moth and wildflowers. Certainly experiments have been done where uh, in, a, in a wildflower meadow, cages have been put up to prevent uh, moths and other pollinating insects from getting access to the flowers. And what those studies have shown, that obviously that very few of those flowers are then pollinated and therefore fertilised, and there is a much lower production of seed and therefore if that's the case in the long run those particular wildflowers will um, will reduce in number and potentially you know become locally extinct on, in those in those little plots. And it does seem like butterflies and moths are actually very good carriers of pollen for some plants and I know that you know as you said wildflowers some wildflowers are absolutely dependent on them that isn't maybe the case for some more farming species or vegetables or, you know, fruit, uh, but they are very good carriers of pollen. So they therefore must make a difference uh, if they're about and if there's so many of them flying about at night. Yes, no, d definitely. As I say, it's, it's a bit of a grey area. We don't know a huge amount about it. There are more studies going on, but the fact that they're going in to get that nectar, um, that is forcing them in there. They're bound to be picking up uh, pollen on their, as I say, on their bodies, on their legs, on their tongues, on their heads, and they'll be transferring that to other flowers as the, as they go about their business, uh, you know, getting their nectar. And uh, so, as a reward for visiting these, that's what the moths, as other pollinators, the same as the bees, are looking for. They're looking, uh, they are looking for nectar. But is that not right that uh, some species don't? actually give them any nectar at all. Pyramidal orchid, for example. Yes, that, that's right. Yes, in that case, the, uh, the orchid really uh, deceives the, uh, the moth. They're wonderful bright flowers. They produce a wonderful scent, particularly at night. 
So the moth is uh, um, attracted to the flowers of pyramidal orchid, yet it produces no nectar. So it still will carry on the uh, job of pollinating pyramidal orchids, yet it doesn't get any reward. Presumably the scent is so intoxicating that uh, the, the, the moth will um, you know, keep on trying, hoping to get that nectar, and probably in doing so will probably rub off the pollinia from the orchid and then transfer it to, a, to another orchid. So do you think that declines in butterflies and moths would, would uh, lower the reproduction success of some plants? And do you think that would be fruit and vegetables possibly as well as just our native species, which obviously rely heavily on them for pollination? I suppose, yes, potentially. I mean, plants that are reliant on uh, butterflies and moths to pollinate them, if there are dramatic declines in their populations, and sadly that is the case for a number of our species of butterflies and moths, then obviously there's going to be less chance of pollination and then less chance of uh, reproduction. So that will have a negative knock-on effect in um, you know, the populations of these particular flowering plants. So how would you encourage more butterflies and moths. So if you're, say, a farm or a householder growing vegetables or someone who's got a small orchard, you know, it would be a good thing to have more butterflies and moths about the place. They're obviously also part of a really healthy ecosystem with more birds. So I think it would be an important thing to have as, say, part of your part of your healthy farming ecosystem. So what things do you think would be you could do to change your habitat and maybe encourage more butterflies and moths around? Yes, I think the key thing is um, semi-natural habitats and native species. You know, as we've said before, that the, the caterpillars are feeding predominantly on, um, you know, grasses and the leaves and flowers of plants and the, the leaves of trees. And you get far more species on native trees and native uh, flowers and plants than you do on sort of alien species. So, so and also having a mix, you know, the, the greater mix of plants you have, then potentially the much greater diversity of butterflies and moths that you can have. The, the other thing with uh, butterflies and moths, unlike birds, you know, if you're providing breeding habitat for lapwing, for instance, you, know, you would need, um, you know, on the whole short grass that's been grazed relatively heavily and provide that just through that sort of short, you know, month breeding season. Now, because butterflies and moths on the whole are, are so sedentary, then you've got to provide the suitable habitat throughout the year. So not only are you wanting to, to provide them with the particular food plant that the caterpillar is on and maybe the particular food plant that the adults will nectar on, they also need somewhere to overwinter. And sometimes just little patches of slightly rank tall grass uh, can be very good, especially sort of tussocky grass, because they've got to overwinter at a certain stage. That's predominantly, as we said before, as a caterpillar, but it could be as a pupa or even as an adult. And having that shelter to get away from the extremes of the weather and sort of get in, into the, the where there may be a bit of shelter and a bit of dryness is so, so important. So really having a sort of a, a, a mix of habitats, a mix of structure, native species, semi-natural habitats is, is so important. 
obviously for what we're talking about just now about pollination, the key habitat for these species is semi-rich grasslands. And they are best managed through light grazing, particularly seasonal grazing that takes off most of the rank vegetation, particularly if it's done after the flowering plants have set seed. And that then allows them to, to reproduce and to come back the next year. I think uh, when when I've been talking uh, to clients about pollinators, one of the things we're particularly looking for for a whole range of pollinators is the microclimate. So even a very small area can make a difference, like a banking, particularly that's south-facing and a wee bit sheltered. And I particularly noticed that uh, in the winter or early spring when these early pollinators are out, that they're looking for this really sheltered, sunny uh, place to go. And now that that is as important as having the right species there is the microclimate. Very much so, Helen. Yes, yes. South-facing, sunny, sheltered spots. So if you are going to manage, say, specifically for butterflies and you want to encourage your butterflies either to, to breed there or particularly to um, attract the adults for, with uh, nectar that you're growing for them, then yes, doing that in south-facing, sunny, sheltered spots is, is the thing to do. Yes, on really, really warm days, they might be over on the north-facing side, but sadly, we're in Scotland and having that warmer microclimate on the south side um, and providing shelter, particularly if you're in sort of more coastal areas where it's windy or predominantly windy, is so, so important. So I think we're kind of coming to the end of our discussion just now, but if people want to find out a little bit more about the Scottish butterflies and moths or maybe even how to get involved in butterflies and moths or even how to have a look at what butterflies and moths are on their ground, is the what kind of resources are around for people to use? Uh, yes, well, there, there's a vast amount of resources out there. I would say that probably your your best and first port of call would be our uh, website, our Butterfly Conservation Scotland website, which is www.butterfly-conservation.org forward slash Scotland. If you go in there, you will find various links to different pages. And the two that I would certainly recommend is that we have a PDF leaflet of the Butterflies of Scotland. So that has a little bit of text and photograph of all the 37 different species of butterfly that there are in the country. You'll also find for some of our scarcer species of butterfly, individual fact sheets. And the other thing, if you want to know more about moths, so that's more about their life cycles, how to catch them in terms of different moth traps or natural attractants, how to set them, a little bit about identification, but obviously with 1,300 different species, we can't have an identification guide or a small, short identification guide online. But we have this Learn About Scotland's Common Moths leaflet that you can download as a PDF. And in there, there's also information about different uh, identification books. And last year, we published a atlas, a UK atlas of the larger moths of the British Isles. So that has got very good information about uh, where species are distributed across the whole country. So a huge amount of information there. And the other wonderful thing about butterflies and moths is that the vast majority of the recorders, the people that are interested, are only too happy to talk about butterflies and moths and give people a hand and help with identification. So there'll be contact details on the website as well. So feel free to get in touch with anybody. 
That's great, Tom. Thank you very much for speaking to us today and giving us this really good insight into the world of moths that many, many people are completely unaware of. I think we've had a really interesting discussion on the moths and butterflies and their role in the countryside, which obviously having heard today is really important. So please, if you are interested, do get involved. If you want to know more through Butterfly Conservation, of the website that Tom's just given you. Uh, and do get in touch with them if you want to know more about them. If you want to know more about these type of podcasts, this podcast was made with funding from the Farm Advisory Service. So you can look for more on www.fas.scot. So thanks very much for listening today. Cheerio. For more information on the topics covered in this podcast and other information focusing on biodiversity and how you can improve habitats on your farm, please visit the Farm Advisory Service website. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.